Double K Super Show, Episode 16, Don't Rock the Casbah. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Captain Paola. I'm Mark Konsarowski, bubblegum extraordinaire. And tonight... <laughs> I like that one. Tonight we're going to talk about Casablanca Records, the famous and also infamous disco label of the late 70s. And to tackle such a big topic, we're bringing in the big guns. Uh, the last time we had her on the show, she was so much fun. We all had a great time. So please welcome back to the show, Kathy Williams. Kathy, welcome back to the Double K Super Show. Thank you for having me. And I guess we're going to talk about Casablanca Records, which of course was the preeminent disco label of the late 70s. We need to go retrace our steps a bit. And of course, Casablanca is the brainchild and creation of one Mr. Neil Bogart, the late great Neil Bogart. So, Mark, why don't you give us a little background on Mr. Neil Bogart? Well, Neil Bogart, believe it or not, started life under semi-humble circumstances. He was born Neil Scott Bogatz at a very interesting location known as the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, which perhaps gives you a clue to what faith he belonged to. Um, he was Catholic. born Orthodox, of course. Um, he was born on the 3rd of February, 1943, in Brooklyn. Um, he grew up in, a, in an actual housing project in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Um, so his beginnings were, some, as I say, semi-humble, um, he soon rectified that, however. He became involved in the music industry at a very early age. He was, actually had a singing career in the early 1960s. He called himself Neil Scott at that time. And his singing career didn't work out so well. However, he got to know the other end of the music business. He started dealing with DJs. He started dealing with record promotion. And at the age of 23 in 1966... Neil became the president of the Michigan office of Cameo Parkway Records in Detroit. That lasted for two years. Uh, Cameo Parkway was famous as the home of Mitch Ryder, uh, the very early Bob Seger, a whole bunch of other groups. Um, MC5 released some of their very early singles on Cameo Parkway. And I can't remember the man's name, but the guy who did uh, the Senator Bobby Kennedy version of Wild Thing... That was also a Cameo Parkway production. And uh, anyhow, Cameo Parkway lasted two more years. Neil ran the, the Michigan office. Uh, Cameo Parkway was shut down in 1968 uh, by the United States government over a stock fraud investigation, at which point Neil moved to Buddha. Any, anything from, from Yummy Yummy to uh, Listen While I Play My Green Tambourine, that was all on Buddha. Those were all considered novelty hits by the time I was growing up in the 70s. Exactly. That, that, well, that's what bubblegum was, novelties. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> um, in 1968, Neil joined Buddha Records, which was known as the home of bubblegum. Um, all the novelty songs, everything from uh, Yummy, Yummy, Yummy to uh, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, um, Bubblegum and, and just pure AM radio pop music, a lot of novelties. Songs like uh, The Worst Thing That Could Happen by the Brooklyn Bridge. Remember that one? No. Fair enough. I don't remember a song about the worst thing that ever happened in the, on the Brooklyn Bridge. You want to sing it to us? 
No, the worst thing that can happen by the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't know that one either. So, like, you no, got no you got memory of, yeah, no memory of a band called the Brooklyn Bridge or their song "The Worst Thing That Could Happen." Nor do I remember any hits called "The Worst Thing That Could Happen" by the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, apparently, the worst thing that could happen is that we don't know the song. Yeah, <laughs> the worst okay, thing that uh, could happen is apparently it never got played. Listen while I play my green tambourine by the Lemon Pipers. You remember that one? Oh yeah. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got yes. love in my tummy. One, two, I think three, we had a whole light. album called Dumb Ditties, and every song you're mentioning is on that record. Exactly. It was all Buddha. In 1968, Neil Bogart became um, the president of Buddha Records, which was known as the home of novelty, pure pop, AM radio, bubblegum. Songs like Green Tambourine, Yummy, 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 uh, Ten Little Indians, One, Two, Three, Red Light, etc. Uh, groups like the Ohio Express, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, etc., etc. And he stayed there for five years um, during the height of the, of the entire bubblegum movement. It was early in 1973 that Neil got the idea to move on. He wanted to move out to California. He wanted to start a new label. It was originally going to be called the Emerald City. That proved to be impossible, copyright infringement. So he settled on calling it Casablanca because it would be distributed by Warner Brothers Records, which owned the rights to Casablanca. And he figured they weren't going to sue him because, you know, it wouldn't look good for a comp- uh, for the distributor to be suing one of their uh, affiliated labels. Not to right. mention his name is Bogart. And- which had to have played into this somehow. Yeah, I was going to say it's at this point that he changes his, his name. Aha, uh-huh, okay. So the reverse is true. He named the label Casablanca first and his name to Bogart second is what you're saying. Right. Okay. I, I, so, no, I think he was Neil Bogart by that point. Well, I, he would, he'd always been an aficionado of Humphrey Bogart. And Bogart sounds better, more professional than Bogats. So I guess that's what he was thinking. I think these days Bogats would probably be a better name because it's it's kind of weird. But back then, everything had to be kind of anglicized and, you know, homogenized. Yeah, yeah, he was assimilating, basically. Right. I mean, he was a Jew and he wasn't – he was you know, he was proud of it. But at the same time, he didn't want to be too Jewish. Right. That, that's kind of how – right. You, you don't want to be too ethnic for, you know, middle America. And especially where he was striking out on his own. I mean, granted, he they did have the umbrella of the Warner Brothers organization. They were basically bankrolling it and providing him with manufacturing and distribution. But that only lasted for a while. It also bears noting, too, that when Neil went out to California, he took his, his uh, cousin, Larry Harris, who had uh, started with him at Buddha, basically as his, like, uh, gopher or his assistant. <coughs> But Larry Harris had you know, learned the business very quickly, and he was basically Neil's second-in-command by the time he went out to California to start Casablanca. He really wanted to be plugged into the business, and he felt that California was more of a mecca for that than New York. Yeah, it was the West Coast was a whole lot of thing back then, a whole lot of fraud and stock and whatnot and investigations that had plagued him in other areas of the country uh, were a little bit slower developing out on the West Coast. You know, Neil wanted to to kind of move into the fast lane of show business, which, of course, he did, and Casablanca would be infamous for it. 
the first act that they signed, and of course, we always seem to go back to this group, but the first group he signed was Kiss. And apparently, you know, it was a situation where he heard the tape, he liked it, and then went to see them and realized, okay, these guys have something. But interestingly enough, Warner Brothers said, uh, we don't like the makeup, you know, why don't you tell them to take the makeup off? Neil Bogart really didn't want to do that, but he kind of had to because when your distributor is your bank, you know, is bankrolling you and they're call- they can kind of call the shots. So he told them they want you to do this, and basically they said, uh-uh. So Neil said, okay, fair enough. Went went back to Warner Brothers and said, nope, no dice. Kiss got signed, and of course their first album came out, and it was not a hit to say the least. No, that's very true. Their their first album kind of floundered around number 87 on the charts. Um, Casablanca. Well, they were ahead of their time. They probably didn't have their audience yet. That's pretty much it. It, it took a whole lot of television appearances, including one infamous one on the Merv Griffin show. Oh, yeah, the, the one where uh, Tony Fields said, you know, wouldn't it be nice that underneath all that makeup, he was, you know, she was referring to Gene Simmons, that he was just a nice Jewish boy. And he says, if you only knew, and she goes, I do, you can't hide the hook. And then Gene <laughs> stuck out his tongue and kind of flexed his nose a little bit. Like, I don't know how he did that, but it was, it was it's very funny, actually. This was Kiss's first appearance, and you could tell by the looks on all of them. Like, they were just like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and interestingly enough, one of the people in that uh, on stage, uh, one of the guests was Robert Klein, who a few years later would have his own show and would interview Kiss on his radio on his radio show when they were pretty much at the peak of their popularity, but we're jumping ahead here. Because mm-hmm. Casablanca, Kiss, Kiss was not a success right away, and neither was Casablanca. They, there was some rough going in the early days. The closest thing that the early, early Casablanca had to hit was uh, So You Are a Star by the Hudson Brothers. Right, but I think, if anything, that was like a moderate hit. That was definitely not like a big breakout hit. No, it was the closest. Like I said, it was the closest yeah. thing to a hit. Um, they did hire, they did have the last album that T-Rex released in America, Light of Love. That didn't go anywhere. Um, they had a group called Fanny, which kind of has a little bit of notoriety these days as being an all-female rock band. Unfortunately, they, they didn't sell anything. They did, however, at this time sign a group called Parliament, which took a year or two to get moving. That's right. Yeah, it seemed like, it, you know, they signed the right artists. It's just that it took a while for them to build their following. And part of the reason, I think part of the reason why they may have had some issues with sales was because there was a vinyl shortage at that time, apparently. So Warner Brothers was not pressing excess quantities of any of their affiliated labels. In other words, Casablanca was, you know, was distributed and manufactured by them, but they ran their own show. So they didn't they were having a hard time getting the albums into stores and to make matters worse there was a meeting apparently this conference call from between some Warner Brothers executives where they said we don't like Kiss so you know what don't promote them somebody apparently got word to Neil Bogart and Neil Bogart threw a fit and decided we're not going to get anywhere being a part of the Warner Brothers conglomerate so he went to Mo Austin who was the president of the label and said I want to get out of this contract. I, I don't think you guys have our best interest. And Mo Austin said, okay, we'll just write it off as, you know, bad business. And Neil Bogart apparently insisted on paying him back. And, and from all accounts, uh, Larry Harris's book, 
Uh, Larry Harris, the vice president, and his cousin wrote a book called In Party Every Day. Apparently they did. This got them free of Warner Brothers, but now they had to scramble to find a network of independent distributors and promoters to basically repress their catalog and get it back into the stores because the Warner Brothers stock was going to run out at some point. Yeah, that was at the height of the OPEC thing. Oil was apparently in short supply, and of course, oil is necessary in the making of vinyl. So yeah, a lot less vinyl was being pressed. That's also around the time that uh, the quality of vinyl began to downgrade. Um, if you if you've ever seen a record made around that time, they're a lot thinner than records that were pressed in the 60s. The quality the quality of vinyl and of course the audio quality of vinyl definitely suffered. And then Casablanca made a move that they thought was going to buy them into the big time, that, but it almost ended the label. They struck a deal with Johnny Carson to release a two-record set called Here's Johnny, Magic Moments from The Tonight Show. They figured, Johnny Carson, how can that miss? So they printed up 750,000 copies of this uh, double album of audio excerpts from The Tonight Show. Not video. There was no home video back then. So back then, if you printed up uh, 500,000 copies of it, you shipped 5,000 copies, 500,000 copies of an album, it was considered a gold record. This was before they registered them as sales and not shipment. It flopped. I mean, Larry Harris said it hit the floor with a giant thud. They were scrambling because, you know, at first they got all these big advances from the distributors thinking, oh, this is a can't-miss proposition. Then people were calling them up saying, uh, we want to send these records back because back then they had unlimited returns in the record industry. Larry Harris said that basically he would give them discounts or he'd give them like promotional ads or do something just to keep the album in stores. And that kind of kept the wolves at bay. And another interesting thing happened was is back then record labels would press like 10 percent of records sent out were called free goods. And what that means is those were free albums, free promotional albums that they would give to record stores for in-store play. When the records started coming back, they were returning these free records as records that they bought. So this gave rise to a joke <coughs> that this was the first album that shipped gold and returned platinum. That was definitely a fiasco. Well, it, it was a it was a bad idea to begin with because an al- an album of audio excerpts of Johnny Carson, the only the only audience that you could conceivably make use of that record would be DJs, you know, using them for drops. I can't imagine anybody sitting at home, you know, wanting to hear you know <laughs> extracts from the Tonight Show when they can just wait six hours and watch it. Right, and you have to also consider, too, that like part of Johnny Carson's appeal, and Kathy, I'm sure you remember this, was his reactions, his facial... Oh, right, yeah. He would always overreact to everything, but it would usually make you laugh. And that's something that's missing. You can't get that on an audio record. And like I said, this was probably right before VHS became a thing. And, you know, before probably like five, ten years before VHS would become kind of a, a standard thing. So... Had they released this 10 years later as a video cassette, it, it probably would have sold. But the irony is that this album that flopped, because they got all this advance money and they kept the credit, believe it or not, it kept the company going. They were hustling. But as Larry Harris said, they were kind of whistling past the graveyard because they were on borrowed time. In fact, at one point in 1975, 
Neil said, Neil Bogart said to Larry Harris, okay, uh, I'm leaving. I'm going to Vegas for the weekend or I'm going to Vegas for the day, whatever. And what Neil Bogart did, and Neil, Larry Harris thought he was going to go to Vegas and gamble, get the money that they needed. Well, it turns out he went to Las Vegas, cashed in uh, a $10,000 line of credit and came back and used that to make the payroll for that week. That's how bad things were. <laughs> yeah, things were definitely like on the ropes for quite a, quite a while. Then the impossible happens. Somewhere around the fall of 1975, Kiss has the great idea to release a live album, an A-live album. It's also around that time that Parliament releases an album called Chocolate City. And it's also around that time uh, somebody brings the uh, German-based singer Donna Summer to Neil's attention. Well, actually, she well she was German-based at the time, but she's actually a, mate, a native of Boston. Oh, that's true. But yeah, she she was she was married. I, I think at the time she was married to a German uh, fellow whose last name was Sommer. But of course they anglicized it because you know Sommer. What's that? Sounds like you know something like Sommer. And of course. Donna Summer's big hit was the first recorded or, the first recorded orgasm or the first commercially released orgasm, Love to Love You Baby. Yeah, 17 minutes in heaven. Yeah, which of course was not only edited down for single play, but also I think the orgasms were either taken out or they were put down in the mix. Because you, you can't have kids listening to orgasms. That's true. But yeah, that, that probably is like the first American mainstream disco smash is love love to love you baby that is the uh, the start of really what casablanca did best that that initiated their long string of disco hits i think disco started out in 73 and 74 in europe and of course we're always like a year or two year or two behind when it comes to jumping on trends but disco was definitely gaining momentum and now you had Casablanca hitting with Kiss, which was getting the rock people, Parliament, which was getting the R&B funk people, and you know Donna Summer, who was kind of shepherding the burgeoning disco moment. Um, Kathy, you know, when yeah. do you remember, first remember hearing Donna Summer? I'm gonna guess it was probably closer to 1976 or 1977. Yeah, because I do remember I feel love, but I want to say that was around 1976 or 1977, possibly yeah. even 1978. But you mentioned the earlier 70s, 73, 74. I don't remember hearing her name at that time. So I don't know if she was getting a radio airplay in my small hometown. No, no, she she didn't actually have a record out in the States till 75. I think she I think she had a she may have I think she may have had a record out in 74, but it was I think it was in Germany, or if it if it came out in the US, it was on a small label. It was kind of preceded her. And in fact, from what I understand, it might be even a rock and roll album or a rock pop album. The, the early middle, the early mid 70s, you know, you had uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band working down in Miami. You had uh, the Bee Gees starting to go disco. You had, uh, you know, songs like Kung Fu Fighting that are kind of quasi disco. Hmm. Van McCoy, The Hustle, you know, so things are definitely getting jittery on the disco floor. <laughs> Well, and of course, Neil Bogart was quick to jump on any trend, especially one that he felt he could uh, milk and make a lot of money on. And of course, around this time, Casablanca was really starting to make money. But of course, 
they had also spent a lot of money. And so I think whatever money came in from the initial successes was just basically covering their expenses because Kiss at one point had filed a lawsuit to leave the label citing non-payment of royalties. And the timing of Alive was great because all of a sudden they had the money to pay their royalties and say, hey, we paid our royalties. And in fact, in the fall of 75, uh, Kiss used that leverage to get a new deal with Casablanca for better money and uh, you know a little more promotional push. But it was rough going there. If, Cas- if things hadn't hit when they did, Casablanca would have been a big failure instead of the big disco label that it became. Yeah, it sounds like it was part of a larger pattern towards favoring dance music. Yeah, well, like I said, it's, you know, Neil Bogart would just jump on whatever trend was hot and hip and would go with it. I mean, he's credited with kind of pioneering bubblegum, although he might have just been, it might have just been another situation where he just jumped on a trend. But yeah, Casablanca was hitting on all cylinders. And then, you know, that success just carried forward into 1976, although Kiss at one point looked like it was going to be a one hit wonder. They did because at first they appeared to be a novelty act. So I don't think anyone really uh, sensed that they would have longevity, that longevity that they did. Well, they released the follow to Alive in uh, March 1976, the Destroyer album. And they released the first single, Flaming Youth, which did fair to middling business. Then they released a second single called Detroit Rock City, which is which is one of their signature songs. But that didn't really generate a lot of buzz either. But what happened was the B-side of Detroit Rock City was this song called Beth, this ballad that Peter, the drummer Peter Christensen wrote about his wife at the time, but that's really not true. But so apparently uh, a radio programmer somewhere turned over the record and started playing Beth and said, you know what, I don't really care about the other song, but I like this song. And they decided to push Beth. In fact, they repressed the single with Beth as the A-side because – they felt by that point radio stations had rejected the Detroit Rock City single, so let's resend it out and we'll put Beth. That ended up going to number seven in the top ten, Kiss's very first top ten hit, and that saved the record because it had stalled out at about 500,000 copies, which is gold, which is fine. That's a significant achievement, but when your last album sold three million copies and your next album sells five and a half, uh, 500,000 – the record label says uh, you're down by five sixths or something like that. Yeah, Beth is the perfect single. It's the perfect Kiss single. It's the perfect Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin was the producer of the Story album. It's the perfect Bob Ezrin production. It's the perfect Casablanca production. It is glitzy. It is orchestrated. It is very Hollywood. It's a little bit, you know, processed and insincere. But it's undeniably catchy. The the craft of it is what sells it. It's also a tradi- more of a traditional love song. So I think that it had a broader audience. I certainly remember it being really popular on the radio and even among my classmates who would consider it kind of an appropriate slow dance song. Well, there was a, you know, I forget who said it, but someone said, can you imagine how many housewives heard that song? You know, thinking it was probably like John Denver or some middle oh, of the sure. road pop- <laughs> Your pop singer, and then you find out it's a guy wearing cat makeup. Right. You can't make that up. And they actually, Paul Stanley said that they actually thought it was a throwaway song. Well, it's so unlike their others. I'm sure that when they did add it to their album, they want, you know what, this doesn't really fit in, but we need to take up some space here. 
Right, yeah, because, you know, every album, no matter how good it is, most albums have at least two or three filler tracks. I mean, they can't all be top ten hits. Well, the key to this is Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin, if you remember, had previously produced singles for Alice Cooper, um, Only Women Bleed, um, you know. I Never Cry. I Never Cry, exactly. You know, songs that are very much in the Beth mold. Uh, Destroyer is basically kisses, you know, Bob Ezrin, Alice Cooper production. The albums that are produced by Bob Ezrin for Kiss don't sound like any other of the Kiss albums. That's for sure. But the interesting thing is, like Kiss, uh, Kiss was, you know, okay, they are they got on track again and they would stay on track for the next few years. Parliament got a big boost and they were riding high with Mothership Connection and, of course, the. They were kind of, in some ways, the funk equivalent or the R&B funk equivalent of Kiss because they wore flashy costumes, had big theatrics, and they even had a spaceship land on stage, if you can believe that. One thing oh, both Kiss yeah. and Parliament have in common is that they were both had a real visual component to their shows, and this is before MTV. Right. So if you're going to sell disco music as Casablanca specialized in, for people to listen to and dance to, then that component doesn't really help you there. They That was only going to help them if you could get on, uh, on, a, on a TV show so people could see what you look like. Right, and you were limited back in those days. I mean, this, like you said, this was before MTV. I mean, your options were you got on a daytime talk show, which was kind of sketchy. I don't think Parliament Funkadelic would have... I think they would have freaked out Middle America if Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas had had them on. But they were got, definitely more Soul Train. Even Soul Train, I think they were too out there for. But I, I can't say. But basically, your options were Dick Clark and American Bandstand. Again, probably too white bread Middle America for Parliament. So you have Don Kirshner's rock concert and the Midnight Special, and I'm and I have to imagine that they appeared on at least one or both of those shows at some point. Yeah, it may be the case. I don't remember personally seeing what George Clinton or Parliament looked like until the 80s. (laughs) So if they did appear on television at some point, I missed it. And, you know, interestingly enough, Donna Summer, although she had her first hit in 1975, her career kind of cooled for a little while after that. It wasn't really till late, late 77, early 78 that her career really started to catch fire. And, of course, while this is happening... Disco was starting to catch on in popularity, and the success of their music not only went to their artists' heads, but it went to the heads of people at Casablanca. Casablanca was basically Sodom and Gomorrah. There was literally sex and drugs and all sorts of crazy things happening at the office. That sounds like every radio record label I ever hear about from the 70s. Yeah, but Casablanca was like the extreme. Are they the winners? (laughs) Yeah, oh my God. They were the winners. Literally, like, some guy was on a a call with someone. Someone walked into his desk, (gasps) flew it on him, and lit the desk on fire. And Uh. the guy says, yeah, my desk is on fire, Larry. I'm going to have to call you back. They would do this thing where if they wanted to to test a record to see if they thought it would be good – uh, someone would play it like at the most highest volume possible so that everyone could hear it. And if people gravitated and con- you know convened in a common area, then they'd say, okay, it's a hit. But people were literally doing mountains of, mounds of blow, uh, cocaine, pot. Qu- Quaaludes apparently were very popular. And 
it seemed like everybody, Neil Bogart included, had their stash, and people were having sex and doing all sorts of crazy. Casablanca, they probably partied harder than some of their acts did. If you went out to the parking lot, it looked like a Mercedes-Benz dealership because they, of the staff of Casablanca all specialized in, in renting uh, Mercedes cars. So you can just imagine the cost associated with that. Well, Neil Bogart basically felt that you have to project an air of excellence. <clears throat> you have to project that you're, you know, top shelf. So he went out and bought everybody a Mercedes. That was their, those were company cars, but everyone. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Everybody got one. <laughs> yeah, everybody got one. And, you know, you couldn't just drive in in a, in a Pinto. Not only that, but like when their executives flew, they had to be in first class because if someone from Casablanca was seen sitting in the coach, that would just not look well. And, and here's something that's that's really telling about how Neil Bogart spends money because this is going to factor into the uh, some later events at Casablanca. Larry Harris in the very early days, it might, it might even have been when he was working for Neil at Buddha, got called into Neil's office and he said, I need to talk to you about your, your expense account. And Larry Harris is thinking – well, I, I haven't spent all my money. I'm very frugal. I'm very, you know, I'm very careful about how I spend my money. He says, you're not spending enough. Oh, no. If Neil He's Bogart, not putting on a good enough show. Right. If Neil Bogart gave you like $500 and you had $100 or even $20 on your desk, you weren't doing your job. Money was not an object. In fact, it's been said about Neil Bogart that he would spend $3 to make one. And based on some of the things that will happen later on, I don't doubt that. They basically Casablanca's rallying cry was whatever it takes. Well, the idea was that all the money that you had in your present um, bank account as profit was basically, you know, the seed money to put out there and bring back an even higher level of profit. So you don't want any money in your bank account because you're always thinking that, you know, the next major tidal wave of profit is just around the corner. In his mind, that's an investment that you're not making. Exactly. And what happened was Neil Bogart, now that he's had some success, wanted to be even bigger. Um, And when I say bigger, he wanted to expand into films. And he got Peter Guber, who was this famous – who was still a famous film producer – to partner with him and Peter Gruber's company was called Filmworks. So they bought uh, Filmworks and they merged it and called it Casablanca Record and Filmworks. But in order to do that, they needed more money because Neil Bargai realized that the real power in this industry lay in motion pictures. You could make, you could have a certain amount of power and recognition in the recording industry, but the real money was in movies. So he got this European conglomerate called Polygram to buy a half interest in Casablanca. And again, this would give them, they would have a big corporation behind them and they could buy, they could spend more money and they could do whatever they want. Polygram had spent the last 10 years buying into the American marketplace. They bought up labels like Mercury and Casablanca was hot. This was 1977. So they basically signed a deal where they would buy 50% of the label and then within five years, I'm sorry, Polygram would buy the remaining 50% and buy Neil Bogart out. So he had his exit strategy planned from the beginning. Now, of course, egged on by money, a big conglomerate, cocaine and whatever, Neil Bogart was setting his sights for even higher vistas. Uh, They had a movie out called The Deep. 
and they would have a movie called Midnight Express. But of course, in 1977, is and we all remember this, the movie Saturday Night Fever came out. Now, oh yeah, the absolute high water mark of the disco era. And Casablanca, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Saturday Night Fever was a huge smash. Now, Saturday Night Fever, the soundtrack album, was not released on Casablanca. It was released on RSO Records. However, RSO Records was distributed by Polygram. Casablanca saw that, oh, they're having this big success with the disco movie and soundtrack album. We've got to do the same thing. And in fact, they already had a disco movie in development at Columbia Pictures. And this album would come out, this this movie and double album soundtrack would come out in, I think, May or June of 1978, and it was called Thank God It's Friday. It did have a major hit single in it, uh, Last Dance by Donna Summer. However, the movie was not as big as Saturday Fever. In fact, the movie really, by comparatively speaking, was a flop. Well, yeah, the, the movie itself slots into, you know, the um, the car wash. Um, I always confuse TJ, thank God it's Friday and car wash, because I feel yeah. like they came out at about the same time. They both had a disco soundtrack, so they both had a lot of uh, record plus movie tie in. But yeah, and also neither one of them were Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> I think I may have even seen Thank God It's Friday at the movie theater because I was 11 years old at the time that Saturday Night Fever came on. My dad would not let me see it because it was rated R. Uh, not so much because of the language or anything like that. He, he wasn't worried about that. It was more like the sexual content. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the funny thing was Saturday Night Fever was so big that they released it a year later with a PG edit, and I finally got to see it. I do remember them doing that. I, I was... I, who was not particularly popular among my classmates, became temporarily popular because my dad thought nothing of it. And he took both me, who was about maybe 14, and my sister, who was about 13. We might even have been 13 and 12 to see Saturday Night Fever because he thought we might want to see it because it had somebody from Welcome Back, Cotter in it. And we liked the show. Now, was this the R-rated version? Yeah, absolutely. Like within a week or two of it coming out. Right. Also, I think he wanted to see it, and that gave him the excuse to say, well, I'm just taking my kids to the movies. <laughs> there you go, yeah, because so. no no parent in their right mind wants to be known as, I want to go see a disco movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, so we saw it in real time. A lot of the adult content went over my head, and I enjoyed the music and the and the visuals, because, again, before MTV, you didn't know what kind of visual might go along with the music that you're listening to. Yeah, I mean, Saturday Fever, I mean – the disco stuff aside is actually a very good movie. It's actually got a good storyline. It was a good marriage of, you know, good storyline, great music, excellent dance sequences, and of course, a rising star in John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. And so Casablanca had to be chomping at the bit like, okay, we're going to get our piece of the pie, and that did not happen. I'm sure it looked like an obvious, uh, and I also think Robert Stigwood probably thought, thought the same thing about Sgt. Pepper's, even though he was somehow involved in Saturday Night Fever, that, okay, music, uh, uh, pop music, whether it's disco or not, plus film is going to equal success. I was going to say, thanks, God, thank God it's Friday is a lot like the Sgt. Pepper film, and that it's basically a very, it's a paper-thin storyline with a whole bunch of musical cameos. It's basically just a video <laughs> It's essentially a 90-minute or two-hour promotional film for Casablanca Records. In fact, um, oh, it's a jukebox musical. 
and the interesting thing was is that when they went to go make the deal to make it, apparently Motown had beat them to it and said, well, we can't do it. So they struck a kind of deal where Motown and Casablanca would kind of co-produce it or, you know, both would get a share of the profits. But I don't think the profits were very big. You know, the only the only thing that really came out of it that could be considered successful was Donna Summer's Last Dance, which was a huge hit, and I think got I think it got nominated. Might have got nominated for an Academy Award. I'm sure at the very least it got nominated for a Grammy Award. The other song that people kind of remember is, is the title track by the Ritchie right. family. Right, and of course, disco at this point is reaching like its peak. You know, 1978 would probably have to be the peak of not only disco, but if you've read the book Hitman by uh, Frederick Dannon, in, in this, and granted this was written in 1990, but he said that 1978 was probably the biggest year the recording industry ever had. Just in terms of sheer sales and impact, there was like just nothing like it. Everything was hitting. They were record, Owning a record label back then was like an excuse to print money. Neil Bogart was so inflamed by ego and you know success at this point that he was signing disco artists left and right. I'm gonna I'm gonna read off a list of names. Well, and no one had been more successful in a very long time than the Bee Gees. So to me, I'm sure that as a record producer, that would make perfect sense at the time. Right. I'm gonna read off a list of names. I'm, I'm, I'm I have the Casablanca Records box set, and if any of you recognize any of these names, please chime in and let me know. Alec R. Constantinos, Terry Desario, Liquid Gold, Cameo. Cameo, oh. I remember. Okay, Cameo, I remember from the 80s, though, as more of a new wave R&B sound, not a 1970s disco sound. At least you recognize them. Oh, yeah. Love and Kisses, Brooklyn Dreams. That Brooklyn Dreams is uh, Bruce Adano's band. It was Donna Summer's husband. Well, he would become Donna Summer's husband, yeah. Okay, I figured you'd get that one. Brenda and the Tabulations, D.C. LaRue, Richie Family. Richie Family, we all know. Paul Jabara, Dennis Parker. Doesn't that sound like the most ordinary name for a disco star? <laughs> and I think I've seen his picture. He looks like some guy. I, I did. I think I saw his album cover, and he looks like a guy who should be in a Marlboro ad. Okay. Just like Denim, he doesn't look like a disco singer. He looks like someone who would be singing like Eagles-type country rock. Okay, let me go on. Um, Starpoint, Giorgio Moroder. Okay, well, we everybody know knows. Yeah. 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 He went on to do soundtracks. He actually did have a single under his own name. Okay, Scat Brothers, The Silvers, People's Choice, Stephanie Mills. Oh, we all know Stephanie Mills. Yeah, I know. But she might be, we know her as a Broadway star, not so much for her one. Uh, right. She did have one. Actually, she did have one kind of a disco hit, but it was a hit single. I don't know. There was a hit album. Right. Stephanie Mills. Is that a let's hear it for the boy? No, that's Denise Williams. <laughs> oh. you, you were kind of right. And that was actually like that was actually like mid 80s. That was like that's the decade that you claim never existed. Yeah. Strange stuff. Yep, and I'm going to reel off a few more. Uh, Parlet, or Par, I don't know if it's Parlet or Parlay. The Four Tops. Yeah, the Four Tops, uh, yeah, apparently. Weren't they a 60s group? Yeah, they were a Motown group, actually. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I, if they came back as a disco group, I apologize that I don't remember them coming right. do, uh, back and doing that. Yep. They, um, they, also, they also frequently apologize for coming back as a disco group. <laughs> right. Miko. 
Well, Mako was the soundtrack guy. Yeah, he did the disco sound, the disco version of the Star Wars theme. Which, by the way, my local TV station used that as uh, background music for their ad bumpers. Okay, let's finish. I'm going to finish up this list. Michael Cimbello. Yeah, maniac. Which, which technically was issued long after the disco era, but it was a Casablanca release. Okay, Ultimate, Patrick Jouvet, Patty Brooks, and this last one, which I, I think both of you should know, Irene Cara. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, because she did the title track to Flashdance, which uh, was a Casablanca release, but I, like I said, long after the disco era. So Neil Bogart, at this point, buoyed by ego and success, was just – signing more and more disco artists and if you've larry harris who uh has long since he passed away a few years back but he wrote a book called in party every day which is like an insider's account of casablanca records and casablanca was essentially a ponzi scheme um despite all of the money they made and all the success they had larry harris says that they were never profitable that they only looked profitable on paper because he would cook the books for the polygram executives that's why they bought into it because he they pulled a massive snow job and said oh yeah we're doing great but casa uh, polygram you know just took them at their word and pretty much gave them free reign for like the first year or two but what happened was that of course success breeds excess and casablanca did something in the fall of 1978 mark knows where i'm going with this they released Four solo albums by the members of KISS, all on the same day. Each guy had his own album. They were released with uh, matching cover art. The KISS logo was on each of them. And, of course, Polygram was like, you want to do what? That was big news at the time. And you didn't even have to be a KISS fan. You That was that was big news among any teenagers at that time. Yeah, it yep. was the first time that any rock group had suddenly decided to release solo albums by all four members. I mean, the Beatles had never done that. The Bee Gees hadn't done it. Yeah, they coordinated it. They had similar album covers, but each had their own, so it really made it look like often when a member of a band goes off and does their own solo project, it often looks like they're abandoning that group. But this was almost like a coordinated effort among the four of them. Well, it absolutely was. Each album, by the way, came with a poster which locked up with the other three so that it became uh-huh. when you put them all together it became one gigantic po- I mean the whole thing was perfectly coordinated from every angle except for one that's right they were going to originally ship 500,000 copies of each record basically 2 million copies total would get out into the marketplace and go to all the big all the stores well kiss's business manager uh, a guy by the name of Howard Marks reminded them that per their contract, they were required legally to ship a million copies of each album. So they went from shipping two million to four million. And as this was coming out in September for the Christmas buying season, Neil Bogart said, "You know what? Let's add another million to that. 1.25 million copies of each album was sent out to the marketplace." And in the final analysis, do you know how much they sold of each one? I have no idea. Roughly about 500,000 copies. Oh, no. So if they had just shipped out the initial 2 million, it would have been an unqualified success. But because they shipped out 5 million, this meant that the following year, 
Three million of those records got shipped back to Polygram's warehouses. And as we discussed on the Double K Goes to the Movies episode, that same year, right around the same time, RSO overshipped copies of the Sgt. Pepper soundtrack, thinking that was going to sell. They were, And as I said, they were distributed by Polygram as well. So guess what? Come 1979, they've got trucks backing up to their warehouses with all these unsold albums and in the case of you know both they were sold they were they were what they called schlocked they were sent to cut out distributors for a fraction of what they what they were worth and these albums ended up in the bargain bins of your local record store or department store if you if your records are seen in the cutout bin it kind of gives the impression that you can't sell records or that your career is over nobody artist right, wants right. that the bargain bin, right. KISS had a clause in their contract that said Casablanca could not do that. Well, Polygram didn't know that, and uh, they did that. And, apparently, and later, KISS would sue them, but this would be long after the Casablanca era had seen better days. But anyway, so here comes 1979. Now, Kathy, as you remember, early 1979, disco was still hot, and it's still all over the place, right? It is. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, you know. In fact, we've been talking about disco as if it started around 73 and 74, and it may have its origins around that time, but I don't even think I even heard the word disco until 1978, about the time Saturday Night Fever came out, is the first time uh, I heard that word assigned to the genre. That was the absolute saturation point where, you know, every part of the culture is saturated with it. Well, even, you know, Mark's favorite singer, Ethel Merman, put out a disco record at that time. Surprisingly, not on Casablanca. Uh, In 1978, I was in a community theater version of Guys and Dolls, and our favorite party album was Disco Guys and Dolls, because somebody somebody had created a disco version of the entire uh, cast recording of Guys and Dolls. Not to mention Disco Star Wars. Just want to quickly make this point. The fascinating thing about disco was you could take anything, practically anything, and discofy it, and it became what disco was in the beginning was like escapist music. You know, you don't want to hear protest about Vietnam. You don't want to hear about how bad things are. You just want to boogie and dance. A lot of people say disco originates from Miami among the Cuban emigre population. Because it does have that funky, you know, sort of Latin beat to it. The very early KC and the Sunshine Band records kind of sound like Disco Santana. <laughs> have, you, have you have you heard any of them? Well, I mean, I know the hits. Well, yeah, the, I the, only the, know the hits as well. The, the very early, like, Miami, Miami dance music is very Latin, very salsa. When you mix that with, you know, black R&B you definitely do create, you know, a funky disco sound, something like an Isaac Hayes theme from Shaft. It's very, very funky. It's very wah-wah. And it's also very Hollywood with the MGM strings. That pretty right. much is, is your recipe for disco. So Casablanca is the perfect label to be the uh, the standard bearer of disco. It's Hollywood. It's glitzy. It's big-budget, overblown I mean, there's there's a reason why Neil Bogart is so identified with this movement. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and like the whole thing, the disco thing came ubiquitous in 78 because I'll never forget going to the store and seeing an album called Sesame Street Fever. 
I'm not – yeah, I'm not kidding. It was literally Grover wearing a three – it was just basically a parody of the Saturday Night Fever album cover with Grover doing the John Travolta pose with a three-piece suit on and Bert and Ernie and maybe Cookie Monster, but I – you know, and everybody was jumping on the bandwagon. Of course, you know, in the midst of all this, Studio 54 emerges as the preeminent disco nightclub, and of course – that place, you know, was like Casablanca and that all sorts of decadent shenanigans were going on, you know, behind the scenes in the bathrooms and in the private rooms. And, of course, yeah, absolutely. I don't think Casablanca solely owned the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, no. But interestingly enough, though, they were so identified that when like people from Casablanca would show up, they got they didn't have to stand in line. They were issued. They were ushered into the VIP section where they could get whatever they wanted. Studio 54 became so big that in the spring of 79, Casablanca records issued a two record set called a night at studio 54. I remember that my mother has a copy of that. And I believe if I'm not mistaken that the, the songs on that were cross faded into each other. Like they do at a disco. Yeah, they were. So that the music never stops. Also, for that same reason, disco songs tended to have the same beats per minute, so you could so you could cross fade into another song, and you know not lose not lose anything. I mean, people wanted to hear the same music just on and on and on. Of course, people are drunk and stoned on quaaludes and you know high on cocaine, whatever. And of course, you know, in the spring and uh, early you know seventy nine, another group. Casablanca group hit big called the Village People, and of course we talked about them in our last episode. But this was really when the Village People were starting to catch fire. You know, YMCA and the Navy, Macho Man, and they were hotter. They were probably the hottest disco group at that time. You almost said they were hotter than hell, didn't you? <laughs> well, let me tell you something, people. <laughs> yeah, but here's something that we all know: what goes up must come down. In 1979, uh, there was the signs that that all was not well at Casablanca were were starting to surface. Most notably, for example, the previously mentioned trailer loads of records being brought back to Polygram's uh, warehouses and you know depots. Well, of course, they're a big European conglomerate. They're going to notice this. And all of a sudden, they started to clamp down a little on Casablanca, and they were starting to watch them a little more. And they kind of had to justify what they were doing, and you know, it was it was becoming more and more of a corporate atmosphere because they did own 50% of the label. So the hands-off approach that they had employed for the first you know year and a half, two years, was starting to unravel, and so was Casablanca. Well, that was also around the time that Kiss. The crazy thing is, when you look at the timeline, the solo record fiasco was in September of 78. The Dynasty album that Kiss released was in May of 79. This is not even a year afterwards. And, of course, Kiss has a huge disco hit with I Was Made For Loving You, which kind of starts disgruntlement among the hardcore, you know, Kiss rock and roll fans. So, right at right on the heels of the solo album fiasco, which is costing the label like how many millions of dollars, all of a sudden Kiss is like starting to like lose a little bit of face among their fan base right at the time when Casablanca can afford that the least. You know, Kathy, you remember I was made for loving you, I'm sure. 
Yeah. I was made for loving me was another big hit. Got yes, played on the was. radio yeah. a lot. Got played in school discos and kind of became a, like, a mainstream hit. Yeah, it was it was huge. The contradictory thing was that it was maybe a little bit too mainstream for the average Kiss fan, you know, because this is also oh, around the time. Well, uh, yeah, every everybody resents it when their favorite band makes a mainstream hit that crosses over to the mainstream and doesn't allow the their hardcore fans to to, to be the only ones who know who they are. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is how different it was for me. When I first heard it, they didn't introduce it. They just put it on. And I'm listening to it. I'm like, you know, it's, it's a disco song. I'm thinking, this song, this, that singer sounds like Paul Stanley. Then at the very end of the song, the DJ, this was on WRKO in Boston, said, by the way, believe it or not, that was Kiss. And my, all of a sudden, <laughs> I, went, I went from being like just kind of casually listening, kind of going, yeah, this is okay. Like, what? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, it didn't bother me. I like the song then. I like it now. But I can kind of understand why Kiss's hardcore fan base, the real rock and roll fans, would be put off by this because – even Gene Simmons has said to this day he hates that song. He, he said, I don't like singing do-do-do like a girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's but, not his you know, style. But on the other hand, you know, if it makes him money, Gene will not only sing it, he'll endorse it. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Gene may not like it, but he doesn't have so much pride that he won't sing it for you. Yeah, yeah, he knows where the money is. And this is also around the time of the infamous uh, Disco Sucks rally that Remember, remember at the baseball stadium in uh, where was it? Chicago. Comiskey Park. Yeah, the infamous uh, dis- disco sucks rally, where Steve Dahl, the DJ, gathered up a whole bunch of disco records and blew them up. Yeah, I'm gonna say that was probably sometime around 1980. It kind of ushered the disco at the beginning of uh, of uh, 80s music. Actually, it was July 79. 79? Okay. Yeah, Six months the, to go. It, it was the disco demolition, and it was done because Steve Dial had been fired from uh, the radio station he'd been working at because they had a format change from rock to disco. And, of course, disco became like a, a lightning rod for all his professional woes. Now, he ended up on another station and pioneered shock jocking, and he said disco sucks, and they would, you know, they would mimic <laughs> blowing up a disco record on the air by, you know, dubbing in an explosion, but he would scratch the needle across the record. And they thought that, you know, maybe 10 or 20 people would show up. Well, apparently a a capacity crowd showed up drunk and high. And when they blowed up the records, they blowed up real good. And apparently the crowd went nuts and they ran onto the field and they were tearing up the AstroTurf and they were going crazy. And, they were supposed to have a, a, a second game. It was a doubleheader, and they got canceled. And, Mark, I don't know if you know this, but it's funny, as we're saying this, last week, Felipe Rose of the Village People started his own disco podcast. And really? his guest, yeah. And guess who his first guest was? Did he have Steve Dahl on? Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> I heard it, too. I, I'm a big fan of Felipe me. Rose. Yeah, oh, my God, it's a good interview. You should check it's it out. It's an excellent interview because it's it kind of cleared up some things about it, it you know, uh, now this is now Kathy and I had talked about this last week. And she, I think we kind of maybe disagree on what Dahl if, if Dahl's, what Dahl said was being genuine or not. But he said he didn't really hate disco. He just hated the fact that he got fired from his job and he just used disco. He was kind of a pawn of the record of the radio station. 
And he said, like, when, when Felipe Rose told him that a lot of the hatred towards disco was racist and homophobic, he said, you know, that was never my intention. I never had anything against, you know, gay people or black people or whatever. And he said, if I, you know, if I kind of furthered that cause or if I gave people the impression that I did, then I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And he sounded sincere when he said that. He did sound sincere about that. And his hatred towards disco, he made it clear, was in- entirely self serving yeah, in that well, the, the change in the industry had caused him to lose a job and have just general uh, employment on insecurity. You said he really didn't even hate disco per se. It was just, you know, convenient target. And of course, like you said, the radio station played that up because it was a shock jock thing. But anyway, yeah, the disco demolition happened. And of course, that was pretty much officially the quote end of disco. Although we, as we all know, disco music didn't stop coming out. Well into the next year, really. The hilarious thing about it is, you know, disco never threatened rock and roll. MTV killed rock and roll. But here's the thing. The end of disco and Polygram starting to close in. The the walls were starting to close in on Neil Bogart. Um, in July of 79, Larry Harris, his cousin, his second-in-command, aide-de-camp, left the company and... Just from what I've read in Larry Harris's book, it seems like that was the beginning of the end. Casablanca continued on, but they started ordering layoffs. The uh, sales were starting to slow down. Neil, of course, was still spending money like it was going out of style. Neil and Casablanca got hit with a major blow to the company and to probably disco in general when Donna Summer filed a lawsuit to be let go from her contract. The basis of that lawsuit was that Neil Bogart had appointed his wife as her manager or her co-manager, and he had also assigned her an attorney. That's a conflict of interest. Donna Summer was very conflicted about this, about doing it, because she loved Neil Bogart and she really appreciated what he did for her. But, you know, Neil did cross a line, and they sued. And between that and diminishing sales and the fact that Polygram started to realize that, okay – if we keep this up, you know, Neil Bogart's going to bankrupt this entire uh, corporation. And when I say corporate, I mean Polygram as a whole. That's how bad the Casablanca spending was. And Mark knows what I'm talking about. Well, the last major Casablanca project that I think Neil was personally involved with was the uh, the Can't Stop the Music film, which turned out to be, of course, a major bomb. Yeah, which would end up being a postscript, really, because that happened after he left – you know, at this point, you know, and, and Neil, and funny thing is, Neil Bogart was actually starting to sign people like Cher and Captain Tennille, who at that point, you know, were kind of, had kind of peaked in terms of their popularity. Although obviously with Cher, she would have peaks and valleys, but she had a disco hit in 1979, "Take Me Home," and on the album cover, she's wearing a very, very theatrical outfit. Well, there's a reason for that, as Mark knows. Okay, maybe Mark doesn't know. <laughs> I've forgotten. She was yeah, dating. what am I missing now? I'm sorry. Cher wore this outfit that looked like something out of a Conan the Barbarian movie. Yeah. And Gene Simmons apparently was the one – he was dating her at the time and said, you know, you need to spruce up your image a little. So between Casablanca and Gene Simmons, she had this very theatrical-looking outfit. Like I said, it looks like something out of a Conan the Barbarian movie. But she had a hit, Take Me Home. And in fact – they wanted to oh, say. Oh yeah, I remember a, her disco hit "Take Me Home." I do. Yeah. I remember. I do remember it now. Well, here's a 
another example of why Casablanca was so excessive. Neil Bogart wanted to say that she had a gold single, but she hadn't sold that many. So he had Polygram press up 500,000 copies and ship them with no orders for them so they could say, okay, she has a gold single. And Neil, in fact, went on, I think it was the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show, one of these daytime talk shows, and presented her with a gold record award. Now, like I said, back in those days, they based record awards on copy shipped, not sold. That's since changed. But Neil Bogart was able to do this because he didn't want to look like a fool on TV. Well, like the Kiss albums and the Sgt. Pepper from RSO, those ended up in a warehouse somewhere. So 1980 rolls around, and you know, disco is dead, supposedly. Things aren't looking good. Well, finally, Polygram decided that enough was enough, and on February 8th, 1980... Uh, relieved Neil Bogart of his duties, bought his shares out, or some say they didn't, but whatever the case was, Neil Bogart was able to walk away from Casablanca Records and not have to bear the financial consequences of his actions. I know that he ends up later at Boardwalk Records. Yeah, that actually, that label was originally named Bogart's, but <laughs> someone probably said to him, dude, seriously. So he came up with Boardwalk. Boardwalk actually did have some some moderate successes, but now Casablanca didn't you know go out of business. Like I said, they, at this point they they were fully assimilated into Polygram, um, and in fact the number one song in the country when Neil Bogart was let go was "Do That to Me One More Time." Remember that one, Kathy? I do. That was a Casablanca. I do remember it. It was just Captain and Tennille's attempt to try to get shake their bubblegum image. Well, because was, disco had left them behind. And so the hit itself wasn't a disco hit, but it was their attempt, attempt at a more right. adult-themed music. Well, it wasn't a disco hit, but it was on Casablanca. Ah, got it. Okay. And in fact, Casablanca would have another hit soon afterwards that uh, Mark and I were actually discussing in our last episode, in our one, one-shot deal episode, Lips Incorporated. And in yeah. preparation for this episode, I listened to my Casablanca Records box set, and of course, you know, funky. We're talking about the song "Funky Town" by Lips Incorporated. Well, you know, Mark had made the observation that this really kind of straddles the line or the fence between uh, disco and new wave. And as I was listening to it, because of course this is the extended, you know, extended dance version. Boy, Mark, you were right on the money with that one. It really does walk that line between disco and new wave. It's almost like, okay, we're saying bye to disco. Here's we're saying hi to new wave. Yeah, the production quality of it is just so sharp. It's just uh, different. The staccatos of the that electronic staccato sound was really 80s. Mm. If that song had better lyrics, it would almost be a car song. <laughs> you, yeah, you're right, because the cars were like a new wave-ish kind of group. They weren't on Casablanca, obviously, but... But yeah, but I mean, even like with Neil Bogart gone, he left with the number one song being a Casablanca song, and then Casablanca had another number one. And obviously, if it became a number one hit in March or April of 1980, it had to have been in the pipeline before Neil left the company. Yeah, that was probably like his, like I said, it was probably one of the last projects that he had any direct hand in, even though he wasn't there to see the outcome. And I tend to agree with Larry Harris that, you know, in his assessment that when Neil Bogart walked on, out the door, the Casablanca era was was over. It was over and done with. Well, they, they Although say it doesn't that, sound like that was the cause and effect, though. It sounds like it was already a sinking ship and he left it at the right time. Oh, absolutely. 
And he, like, you know, as, as Mark is fond of saying, because we've talked about Neil Bogart before, Neil Bogart walked out with the golden parachute. He really did. Um, Polly Graham came in apparently the week afterwards and spent, like, something like $50,000 just clearing the offices out, taking out all the pot plants and all the... All of the all of the fake, you know, Casablanca like regalia, stripping the offices basically clean. And so that the next week when the employees came back, they came back to a very sterile, like European styled office that looked like a place that, you know, sold air conditioners. Well, yeah, and by all accounts, it did become very corporate and stodgy. Like, you know, all of a sudden, like people weren't doing drugs or at least they weren't doing them openly anymore. Because you could do them openly. They didn't care back in the Neil Bogart days. But, yeah, it basically, you know, they kept having layoffs. Uh, Some of the people stayed behind, and they eventually were let go. And they said basically by 1982 or 83, all it really was was a a label, a logo, and maybe a secretary or two. And they used it, Cornelary House, as a dumping ground for soundtracks and albums that they just Polygram wanted to didn't know what to do with. Of course, Casablanca's biggest success, technically speaking, was the Flashdance soundtrack from 1983, but this was sort of after the fact. This was long after Neil left, long after the disco era, but still, it was on Casablanca, so it can be claimed as a Casablanca success. It's actually the year after Neil Bogart died. Yeah, which, yeah, ironic, yeah, exactly. And we should probably go into that. But, of course, Kathy, you remember Flashdance. Oh, absolutely. It was a huge hit. I saw it in theater when it came out when I was in high school. Everybody loved it. Well, not everybody. Well, okay. Well, teenagers loved it. I was a teenager. I didn't love it. Okay. Teenage (laughs) girls loved it because she was really independent. Right. Oh, don't get me wrong. I watched the video and enjoyed the video because there's this girl gyrating throughout the whole video. (laughs) Yeah. My friends and I went to see it, and we had a blast. We thought it was a fun movie. It's not a movie I would have gone to have seen back in the day. I probably watched it on cable later on, I'm sure. But anyway, um, Neil Bogart leaves Casablanca in 1980, but he's not gone. For, he's not down for too long. Uh, almost immediately, he starts a label called, as Mark as Mark mentioned, uh, Boardwalk, the Boardwalk Entertainment Company. Their first major release was uh, they signed Harry Chapin and did an album called Sequel, which I believe was a, a sequel to the album that had Cats in the Cradle. It wasn't a hit. It wasn't very big. And he signed Ringo Starr, who at that time, uh, let's just say Ringo wasn't doing so hot. No, uh, the, uh, the the days of no, 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 I don't smoke it no more were pretty much over for him at that point. I do remember uh, he had an album out on Boardwalk called Stop and Smell the Roses. And I remember seeing the video on probably like HBO on one of their filler programs or something like that. And it was like, Take a time and smell the rose, and like, not Ringo's finest moment. Let's put it that way. Yeah. No, that album, that album actually ended up in the cutout pins, and probably deservedly so. But um, Boardwalk did have, it did have one number one hit single, and Mark, you know which one that is, right? Is it "I Love Rock and Roll"? You got it. Ah, nice. Yep. This came out in late 1981, and it was good timing because Boardwalk had just been kind of floundering along at that point. And right around that time, or maybe the following year, they signed a band that would not have would not have major success on Boardwalk, but would have success later on 
a band called Night Ranger. Remember them? Sister I remember their Christian. name. I think they were a big MTV band. Sister Christian. Right. Yeah, that, was yeah. after, that was after Boardwalk. They only got. I think their record la- their record album, their first one was like probably the, one of the last things that Boardwalk ever released because it came out after uh, the passing of Neil Bogart, which we should which we should probably get into. Um, sadly, Neil Bogart would not enjoy a run of success into the 80s. In the late 70s, he'd had a bout with uh, cancer. Apparently, was successful. I mean, apparently he beat it. But by late 1981, early 1982, he had a recurrence of that cancer. And in May of 1982, he passed away at the age of 39. That's young. Yeah. Well, they, 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 there's been speculation, too, that the drug use may not have helped. I mean, I'm sure it didn't. But uh, his, his funeral was like a celebrity event. I mean, people from all the major record labels showed up to pay their respects you know, Gene and Paul from Kiss were there. Even Donna Summer, who was in, who was still, you know, they were still having that lawsuit with his, now I guess his estate. Even she came to the funeral and sang at the funeral. I mean, as much as, you know, like I said, she she didn't really want to sue Neil Bogart, but she had to. But even his, his wife or his widow said, you know, you can come to the ceremony. It was this big event and it was very emotional and, you know, he touched a lot of lives. You can, you know, we, we've been talking about his excesses and his spending, but there's no doubt that Neil Bogart, through Casablanca, had a major impact on the recording industry, with, with especially with disco. He absolutely personifies the peak of the, of the recording industry in the 1970s. He and, was one of the faces. Well, he, he, was, he, was, he was one of the faces to the extent, and I don't know if you remember this, Mark, but Kiss did an ad for the Double Platinum album. Yeah. And, yeah, and the ad, Neil Bogart actually comes out and does the ad. He says, hi, I'm Neil Bogart, president of Casablanca, and we're going to honor Kiss with Double Platinum. And he's got a tuxedo on, and, you know, he's just like the master of ceremonies. That's how big he was or wanted to be, that he would actually go and do an ad for his one of his bands. It's but kind yeah, of crazy if that many of his uh, former artists were willing to come to his funeral because often if they, in fact, were only using him all along and now saw no good purpose for him or people associated with him, they wouldn't go to his funeral. No, no they, I think Neil Bogart was one of those people who inspired loyalty, you know, because he, like, he would get behind you. When he got behind you, he would spend millions of dollars and do whatever he had to do to make you a successful so I think he inspired loyalty, and I think a lot of people had a lot of respect for him. I mean, he had some music industry bigwigs at that, uh, you know, at his funeral. You know, like I said, Donna Summer, who was suing him, she even showed up. Kiss showed up. I mean, a lot of major artists were there. I think he engendered a lot of respect, and people just felt like, you know, we've lost a giant. And even Larry Harrison's book speculated, like, what might have happened if Neil had lived. And he he, he suspects that Neil would have rebounded and probably capitalized on MTV and maybe even like into the you know future he would have capitalized on Twitter and he would have found a way to keep current with things. He probably would have even Larry Harrison felt he probably would have jumped on the rap bandwagon. I, I can see that Neil Bogart would jump on any bandwagon that would make him money. Absolutely. He, I, he sounds yeah. like he was a slightly ahead of trends though. So he wouldn't join them after they were already big. He would join them on their way up before you and I noticed they were big. True. That's what he sounds like he had the ability to do. 
And Casablanca was making video films, or they called them promotional films, uh, long before uh, MTV came along. In fact, as I mentioned before, they came out in 1994 with a four-CD box set called the Casablanca Record Story, which is really a lot of fun to listen to. But they also came out with a companion video called Inside the Casbah. Now, this video, which, of course, at the time was VHS, you'd think Inside the Casbah would be a documentary about Casablanca. It's really not. It's just a collection of... Uh, promotional films and assorted uh, ephemera from the Casablanca era. But what's interesting about it, they've got music videos by Angel. Kiss Angel was, of course, one of their biggest misfires. They signed this rock band who dressed in white and looked angelic, but they didn't really hit. Anyway, so they've got music videos, but they've also got these promotional uh, films that are made to look like news items. And in fact, one of them shows them pressing up copies of the Kiss solo album saying, these albums have already sold a million copies and are expected to sell a million more during the Christmas season. And they show them pressing the albums, loading them onto trucks, and then you they go to a Tower Records and they show them in these stacks. They also had a, a, a quote-unquote news report from the site of uh, Village People filming a video in the, in the desert. And the narration makes, you know, if you didn't know these were, you know, in-house promotional films, You'd think that this was like 2020 reporting on them or something like that, but it's a it's a nice it's an interesting collection if you can get it, your hands on one. I I have it and it's it's kind of fun to watch, but it's not really the definitive documentary on Casablanca, and it sums up but it sums up the era fairly well. What it, what it sounds like is that they did have some video footage left over and they wanted to make it available. I think basically like they had this CD coming out this the box set and they realized okay let's. Let's get a companion video. So they sent somebody into the vaults or whatever, and just they scrounged up whatever they could. Some of the video clips are not the best quality, but you know, they're watchable enough. And you get a kind of glimpse into what Casablanca, they even had a couple of uh, animated commercials for the Parliament Funkadelic albums, which are kind of funny. Anyway, um, Chris, how would you care to sum up the great 70s era of Casablanca and the disco culture and kiss culture and culture of excess it was excess taken to a ridiculous degree and it could only happen in the late 70s it would not be something that would be repeatable in the 80s because in the 80s as of course uh, we know the record companies became more and more corporate more conglomerated and a lot less fun and that's what casablanca was it was excessive it was over the top but by gum it was fun i'll agree with that Kathy, have you any final thoughts concerning the 70s culture? Uh, only that uh, certainly the the it sounds like the corporate culture of the record company reflected the entertainment industry as a whole and what I hear of Los Angeles in the 70s as a whole. Yeah, I think the main difference is that the 80s are so conservative you know, you start seeing, you know, short hair. You start seeing tight leg pants again. You have characters like, you know, Michael J. Fox on Family Ties playing, you know, gleeful conservatives. The the 80s culture is, you know, it's Reagan, it's Wall Street. Everybody buckled down. We got to beat the Russians once and for all. It's all there was about a backlash. The, yeah. Well, you know, the excesses of the 70s. You know, Mark and I have talked about this many times on the show. 
anytime you enter a new decade, and we probably, I think we discussed this on our Double K episode, especially in relation to the village people, anytime you start a new decade, the previous decade stuff is automatically disdained and pushed to the side. And that definitely happened with disco. Disco was like seen to be one of the biggest symptoms of the excess all areas mentality of the music industry and just life in general. I mean, the whole let's go to Studio 54, get wasted, go back to our place and have sex all night long. I kind of associate the disco era with the end of the youth of the baby boomer generation before they themselves had to find a way to support themselves. Right. And raise their kids. Exactly. And and of course, Casablanca being run the way it was could not run that way forever. And in fact, there's this guy by the name of Jeff Harris, and he does a music blog called Behind the Grooves, and he's also been on Pods and Sods. He worked at Polygram, not during the Casablanca era, but actually in the 90s. And apparently the debt that Casablanca ran up was so huge that – it took Polygram years, years. It took them like at least a half a decade or more to recover from what Neil Bogart did to them financially. Oh. <laughs> Seriously. Like, they, I, in fact, at one point, I, I think it's possible that Polygram may have been on the ropes themselves because they didn't do their due diligence when it came to Casablanca. They, you know, Larry Harris cooked the books. They thought, hey, this is an up, this is a label that's on the rise and it's going to, you know, hit them in all these marks. So, they didn't understand the market. They just were buying up companies and going with – and just their theory was let's just go with the flow. The flow almost took them under. So that's the excesses of Casablanca and the music industry. And I think, you know, it's like you said, the 70s was this age of excess and the 80s was like the morning after. Okay, we, we're going to clean up our acts now, wear skinny ties, and be conservative. Pretty much the best way to sum it all up. And uh, with that, uh, I guess we will uh, – Bit adieu to the Casablanca era, although the music lives on, and of course Neil Bogart is still a revered figure in the eyes of a lot of music fans. Kathy, uh, thank you for coming on again. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was in, in, interesting for me, as although I certainly remember the disco era from my own junior high school years, I never knew to isolate Casablanca specifically as a label. Well, you have to understand that Casablanca is 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 a rare instance where, like Motown, it's identified with a musical genre. You would never say, oh, Warner Brothers, they're this label, or Atlantic, they're this label. But Casablanca, I mean, they weren't just disco, but they were mainly disco, obviously, in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, I'm glad we could enlighten you. And, uh, you know, your insights were definitely – I definitely loved your insight about Neil Bogart you know, kind of being ahead of the trends a little bit and able, and able to jump on them before they kind of became a thing. You're right. He yeah, he, he spotted the trend. He didn't spot it already being successful before he joined on because he knew where it was going and he saw his place in it. That's what I'm hearing from your descriptions of uh, his career. That's right. And I think mm-hmm. we've covered that era th- thisly and thusly. Would you say <laughs> so, Absolutely. Always a pleasure to have you, Kathy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I always I always learn a lot when I listen to you. And we'll definitely bring you back again at some point in the near future. Yay! We'll, 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 I can talk about music all day long. Well, we'll try to do something next time that maybe you're a little more familiar with, because I know you were concerned 
that you weren't going to know much about Casablanca. And I said, well, don't worry. Mark and I know we have all the background. We, you know, you, we'll just fill you in. Like you said, I can just do color commentary. <laughs> exactly. I was going to need you to supply the, 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 the trivia. And I was sure jogged my memories from that era because, like I said, those are my junior high years. And I was listening to the radio all the time. I even slept with the radio on, so I remember the, the pop music from that era extremely well. Well, we're full of trivia. <laughs> Great. And with that, we'll, uh, thus ends another episode of the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam. This is Mark Konzorowski, and our special guest on today's episode is... I'm Kathy Williams. And we will see you next time. On the Double K Super Show. Oh, I like that. Kind of almost Shatnerian pause. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.